Welcome to Housing Developments. I'm Jerry Howard. And I'm Jim Tobin. Hey, Jerry, how you doing? I'm doing okay, Jim. How are you after uh, after spending 10 days in Orlando and you, you have, have had some time to recover now? It, it's good to be back. It's good to hear the, the plaudits of, uh, of how great a show it was and, uh, and, and already accelerating uh, into, uh, into next year in IBS uh, 2023 in Las Vegas. Yeah, I hear you on that. And uh, we've got a ways to go before we get there. What, what, what's catching your eye at the moment? Recording this, uh, what, 48 hours into uh, what has become the, the largest land war in Europe since, uh, since World War II. Uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian army have invaded Ukraine. Uh, I know you've been following this closely. G- give, us your, give us your take on what the heck's going on. I think we don't know what the impact's going to be on our economy or housing, Jim. Uh, I had a very interesting, albeit short, conversation with our economist Rob Dietz today. Uh, Rob and his team are going to start looking at uh, what impacts wars of various sizes uh, have put on housing? Uh, are we going to need to shift our manufacturing into the manufacture of war materials? Will we be called upon to feed Europe, uh, given the fact that the Ukraine, which is known as the breadbasket of Europe, may not be producing food at the rate it has in the past? Will we have to fill that void? Um, will our supply chain issues be able to be recovered uh, depending on what we do need to manufacture, produce, and where we need to ship it. What does this do to housing demand? Uh, all kinds of questions that, uh, thank God, we haven't had to answer in my lifetime before, uh, but we may have to now. Uh, I agree with you. It's uncharted territory, certainly in, in, in my lifetime. So uh, thanks for the thanks for the snapshot. I look forward to, to digging deeper on it. But uh, before we welcome our guests, I want to uh, I want to uh, make sure we uh, give a nod to our, our our sponsor, Wells Fargo Home Mortgage. Uh, once again, uh, a great partner for here at the podcast, great partner of NHB, and and Jerry, as you always say, encourage our members to do business with Wells Fargo. Yeah, Jim, let's, uh, let's bring in our guest at this point in time. Uh, we're happy to have with us Phil Warland, uh, the co-founder and EVP for Sicilian Partners. Uh, he's got a decade of experience or more from Accenture's strategy practice and has been advising uh, Fortune 500 companies on growth and strategy uh, throughout his career. Uh, he's a real pioneer in some of the uh, human-centered uh, and design combining both strategy rigor with design creativity, real cutting edge stuff that's just now really coming into uh, the real estate sector. Uh, Phil, welcome to our show. Thanks very much. Excited to be here. Phil, you worked uh, with our past podcast guest, uh, Alana Money Garman, uh, on the American at Home Study and the Barnaby Concept Home. Tell us what, what you did there and tell us about that project. Yeah, yeah, Jerry, thanks. Uh, pretty exciting thing. And, and it actually evolved uh, organically in a couple of stages. And, and in order to get there, we have to go back. seems wild that 2020 was two years ago. But in 2020, to a survey led by Terry Slavik-Suki uh, and Dalin Architecture, uh, primarily focused on how people's preferences around where they live were changing, given everything that was going on with COVID. Uh, and as, as we went through the survey process, uh, we were starting to generate lots of unique insights about what people were looking for in a home. Uh, Elena was involved and, and, and her whole thesis was, hey, 
why don't we take those learnings and make it real by building a house, uh, which I thought was was amazing. And then we got involved uh, as we were thinking about, okay, Elena is going to build the house. It's going to be informed by all these learnings. Uh, one of the things we were also learning at the same time was how quickly things were shifting from physical to digital. And so as a, as a company, Sicilian Partners is focused on uh, customer experience within home building and community creation and how digital technology moves that forward. Uh, and so we came on as part of the team that was going to tell that story of that house in a digital way uh, and give people a, a totally different way to experience it. Uh, and so that that project went from kind of mid 20, early 2020, all the way through into 2021. Um, and it's been a real success. You know, I think we learned some really interesting things around what are people looking for in a house? Uh, how are they thinking about the house becoming their retreat, right? That study was done in the middle of lockdowns and quarantines and people were spending lots of time in their house. They weren't sure if they could have people over. And I think what, what Terry and the Dolan team and Elena did a brilliant job of was synthesizing these insights around people's uncertainty, around their need for security, around their need for adaptability in the home, and then building that into a design of a home that's remarkably adaptable, uh, that makes great use of space, takes into account how people are using their homes, you know, homeschooling in some cases when kids aren't in school, home office, lots of kitchen space, indoor, outdoor, malleability. Uh, and then I think what, what we did really effectively uh, that was different and, 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 and pretty neat for Garmin was we told that story in a digital way. So you don't have to go to Chatham Park in North Carolina to see the, the, the concept home. Uh, you can go right to the concept home website uh, and actually see how this house comes together, see how it can be changed, see how it's flexible and why it was built the way it was built. Uh, and that's enabled us to have a much greater impact, I think, than just a model home in one spot. It's it's become a national thing. Thirty five thousand people have seen it online, uh, and it's it's really, I think, expanded the impact and and also demonstrated a little bit how you can tell stories about a place and a home in a digital way that's almost as effective as being there. So, so as you went through the pandemic with uh, the research and the analytics, what what uh, what did you find changed? uh through the through the course of the project or, or was it constant all the way through yeah you know there's a great stat that mckinsey did uh in middle of 2020 that we had 10 years of growth in adoption of e-commerce in three months in 2020 if you look at the growth rates and, and how quick people were to start doing things online that they were doing in person before. What it, what it really emphasized to me, and I, and I think some of this in home building is, is a little bit tough to parse, and we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves in that everyone's going to buy homes digitally uh, and, and never come see anything, because I just don't think that that's true. But what was remarkable to us was seeing the level of engagement that everybody, it doesn't matter, demographically, this is not that differentiated. Uh, baby boomers are doing things largely the same as Gen X, largely the same as millennials. Who knows what Gen Y is doing? But broadly, there's not much differentiation in terms of everyone wants to go see something digitally online first and be able to have transparency to the most important elements of the information they're trying to get. And so I think for me, what it, what it emphasized, and I think what we saw was for home builders and, and community developers, especially, there's an imperative around 
meeting the needs of consumers with the design and the build and the actual execution of the house. But just as importantly, everyone is starting that journey online today. If you're not telling a compelling story that's getting people interested in what you're doing and then setting the stage for everything that comes afterwards around the, the awareness and sales process, then you're missing a huge chunk of how people are, are engaging and, and you're going to be behind where your competitors are. I have a couple of questions as follow-ups, Bill. The first is, um, as, as you created this design of this house that is very adaptable to the pandemic and immediate post-pandemic world, did you also try to anticipate what if the changes that have resulted in home usage because of the pandemic, what if it's only a short-term situation and people go back to the other way? Is the house reverse adaptable, if you will? Yeah, that's a great question, Jerry. And I think that was one of the core things that as, as, we, as we got the insight from the survey and we started trying to translate into design of the house and the experience, the biggest question was, what of this is going to fall away? Because someday, hopefully, <laughs> we're back in, in something more resembling previous norm, normal. Um, but it was all about what, what do we think is just acceleration of trends that were already happening? Uh, and what do we think is going to stick for the long term? And then how do we make sure that the house is built in a way that, uh, you know, is good for that? Um, you know, the, the other idea that we had is that, hey, people aren't static, no matter what's happening with a pandemic, right? People's lives aren't static. A couple moves into the house, uh, they have an infant, then they have a second kid, then those kids are in elementary school, then maybe they're in middle school. People live in houses for a long time and their lives change. And so the design of the house should be adaptable to that. And so, you know, I think, Jerry, like a couple of cool examples from the design and, and Dallin uh, Architecture did an unbelievable job putting it together. You know, one of the interesting things we decided, and this always gets a reaction in any sort of builder context, there are no closets in the kids' bedrooms. It's just a room. There's no closets. And the reason for that was that uh, we wanted those rooms to be adaptable and you get the full use of the space. Uh, in that there's great sort of furniture-based closet stuff for kids, for young children. Uh, but what if you don't have kids? Or what if you want to convert one of those bedrooms into an office? Are you wasting that space with a closet? It was an intentional decision around making the space as adaptable as possible. Uh, similar concept, guys, with some of the office spaces that were built in. There's some, some really cool adaptable office spaces. And the whole idea was there's an upstairs office space that can easily be converted into a laundry room. So if you don't need the work from home space, make it an upstairs laundry. If you want that office space, use it as an office. Uh, and I think that every single piece of the design was thought of in that way that, hey, there's maybe a primary use case for this that we were thinking of, but how can we make sure that those rooms are designed in a way that if someone wants to use it for something else, it can be easily adapted to that. And you're not talking adaptability. When we think of adaptability, we think about aging in place and things along those lines. You're talking about kind of the younger life cycle of, of the occupants. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that, that has some to do with the specific focus of the house, that when we built it, the thought was, hey, we're going to take kind of a range of sort of younger, younger people, younger couples that have children or families um, up to kind of middle, middle age. Um, and that was the idea behind the house, because that had been a specific focus of, of parts of the study. Um, but I think it was kind of the idea that 
hey, can we structurally create something in the house and the story around the house that meets needs people understand, but is also built in a way that when those needs change or people have different responses to those needs, um, this house can adapt and be useful for all of those folks. Uh, that's very cool. Let me ask another question. Uh, for our average builder who builds fewer than 10 homes a year, uh, to work with this technology, uh, what's the return on investment? I mean, it, it seems like this is applicable uh, to maybe some of the bigger firms, but explain to our listeners how a small business person can use this and make it worth his while. Yeah, I, well, let me answer that in, in two parts, Jerry, because I think there's kind of two things that we're talking about. One is the concepts around home design that came out of the study. The other is kind of the specific technology stuff that we did around it. So on the first one, I, you know, I think some of these concepts are relevant no matter how many homes you buy, right? As, as you go through the design process, you're trying to create a home for somebody uh, and so some of these things, you know, depending on how custom you are versus how much you're doing kind of repeated floor, floor plans, these are things that I think every builder can learn from, understand what their customers are looking for, and then apply. None of this is uh, overly complex. None of it is requiring crazy technology investments in manufacturing. There was none of that stuff. It was more about trying to figure out what the modern customer really wants in a house and how can we design something that's adaptable to those different variations. I think, Jerry, on the other side of the technology, I think I, I would think about it in two ways, because I think you're, you're, you're bringing up a, a good point of like, hey, if I build 10 houses a year, am I really in the market for spending a fair amount of money uh, on like a digital representation or storytelling aspect of a home? And I, I, I think the answer is, is probably that that instinct is right on, that it's like, hey, if that's the scale uh, and the the size of what I'm doing, uh, those sales are probably being generated sort of outside of, uh, you know, a big investment in showing a sweet 3D model that scrolls and shows different configurations of the house. The, the, the counter to that is that even if you just sell 10 homes, way more folks are looking at your digital presence. And so having a digital presence that is effective at giving those people some idea of what you do, the values you represent as an organization, and acting as a, an effective sales funnel generator for you as, as a builder of that size is an imperative. There's just no other, like if, if the local dog food store can have a good website that allows you to schedule delivery, you as a builder uh, can have a website that communicates your values. And I, I think that's one of the big things that as I've seen smaller builders one of the great things about smaller builders is that there is a real value, right? If you build 10 houses a year, the, the guy whose name is on the door is probably helping build those houses. And that's because he believes in the importance of building home and delivering a great customer experience. And that should come through in the website and how you digitally engage with folks around showing some of the things that you've done, being clear with what you represent as an organization. And so I, I think Jerry... You know, you alluded to it a little bit earlier in the podcast that home building is like a little bit behind. And I use a little bit in a generous way on the technology front. Um, and of course, the bigger scale guys are going to be where you get some of the initial returns. But ultimately, I think one of the beauties of how technology and data exists today is that it's really scalable down to smaller folks. 
And so I think we'll see that more and more as we move forward, that it gets cheaper and cheaper to do innovative stuff online. It's a great way for a small home builder who maybe doesn't have like a dedicated sales team to get that message out. And it becomes a very effective way for customers to engage at the top level of the funnel and then come in and actually end up buying a house. So Phil, Phil, you were a presenter at IBS. Uh, a couple of questions. What was your experience at IBS? Uh, Jerry and I were, were there, as you know, and, uh, and, and obviously the energy was, was great. But, but as a presenter, I'd be curious uh, what your audience looked like. Uh, you know, we talk about technology. I automatically default to uh, the younger generation of builders out there. Um, what was your experience at IBS? That was great. Uh, it's actually the first time I've attended IBS. Um, I'm, I have historically been very involved with Urban Land Institute and the ULI stuff, but it was my first time at IBS. And I will tell you, it is a genuine, genuinely huge, uh, awesome event. Uh, you know, the two halls, it was great. I mean, part of it was cool to see people back in person again. Right. And, and, and being able to speak and feel like relatively normal, uh, you know, the, the scale of the booths and, and the information being presented was awesome. Uh, you know, so many different sessions focused on so many different parts. There's a, a great energy, like you said, to the conference. Um, you know, it's interesting in the session, you asked about our audience. Um, it's, it's, it, it was, it was a good cross section of, I think, builders, uh, designers, um, construction folks, uh, and, and a few kind of marketing and uh, branding and strategy people focused on kind of what are consumers wanting. And so we had, you know, I think we probably had probably 50 people in the session. Um, I will say when, uh, <laughs> when, when the Dolan folks talked about not having any closets, there was an audible gasp. Uh, and there were three separate questions about the closet issue, which I just find, I find hilarious every time that we go through that. Um, but I think people are hungry to learn, right? I think, uh, you know, the market is in such a unique position where it's like people are almost selling whatever they can produce as soon as they can produce it. Uh, but everybody knows that's not a forever condition of the housing market. And so trying to understand, you know, what does the future look like? How should we be thinking about evolving design? And ultimately, <clears throat> you know, I think everybody within this industry cares about some of the great challenges that we have around housing attainability, what that looks like moving forward. And so trying to understand what is sort of the leading perspective on what that looks like and, and where are we seeing that brought to life in the industry? And I think that's where people uh, were pretty excited about the session. That's terrific, Phil. Um, I have one last question for you, and uh, I'm going to try and get some of our members uh, some free advice. You've been yeah. Given advice to some of the biggest, most successful uh, corporate corporate heads in America, um, so now give it to some of us and tell us where do you see uh, technology and housing uh, going in the future? Where do we go from here? Yeah, this is a great question, Jerry. And uh, I'm not sure how much of an oracle I am, but I will share a little perspective. Um, one thing that I think is a misnomer or a misperception. Uh, in our industry, and this happens to everybody who's a little bit behind the curve and trying to catch up or emulate other industries, is we get distracted by shiny toys. And, and so, you know, the, the example I would give is I saw, I saw a post earlier today by one of my former colleagues at Accenture about how the metaverse was going to transform banking. And the example he gave was how cool would it be if 
you could enter your virtual pin in a virtual ATM machine and get virtual cash out in the metaverse. I was like, ah, not cool at all. That's, I, I actually don't like that. I don't like that in the real world. And I've been trying to get away from that in the real world. And that doesn't solve any problems for me. It's like, man, what would be great about the metaverse is if we could start sending faxes, virtual faxes. It's like, I don't want to send virtual faxes. And I think, so, so the, the, the relation back to home building that I take is that I think we get overly focused on, oh, I'm going to do VR or I'm going to create these great renderings that people can come in and do things. Or I hear this narrative of, we want to be the Tesla of home buying. And, and we focus on the superficial aspects of that, whether it's, whether it's video or configurators or whatever that is. And we don't focus on the real, most important parts of technology, which, which is about making the process as frictionless and simple for consumers to navigate as possible. And so you, have, you can have the most beautiful renderings in the world, but if it takes you four weeks to tell a consumer that what they selected is available and, and guaranteed for them, and then it takes you a year and a half to deliver it, that's really where things start to fall down. And, and I think where you've seen in the broader real estate market, technology have the greatest impact is when you're using technology to solve real customer pain points that are making people less likely to buy or less capable of buying. And so I think for builders, where, where I see it, and, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of walking around the technology section of IBS. And, and, and the thing that I noticed was it's kind of like, if I was a builder, I'd be like, what is happening? There's so many different solutions. There's so many different attempts to solve things. Some of them are 30 years old and they've been updated for today. Some of them hit everything. Some of them are for supply chain. Some of them are for project management. Some of them are, are, are maps, right? There's, there's a lot of different solutions out there. And I think where, where we've seen a lot of success, especially with developers, is around this laser focus on what are the customer pain points and how can we deploy technology and change how you do business in order to make those customer pain points less painful. Uh, and I think that that's the focus that, that I would have as a builder is where are customers really unhappy with this process or where are people ejecting themselves from the funnel because they're just like, I can't, it's too complicated. I can't do it anymore. Um, and, and how do we address those head on? Probably through using technology to make ourselves more efficient and more responsive uh, versus Versus kind of the next big thing for our builder listeners, the thing, the thing that should always be out there when you're thinking about technology is what, what customer pain point is this really solving for us? And what are the implications then of how I have to operate? I think there is, again, a little bit of a misconception with digital technology that it makes you more impersonal. That I've heard lots of folks say sort of like, well, hey, I'm not sure about tech because we really make our money through the personal interactions, right? Getting people in to do the sales. Once we get them in, then we got them. And, you know, being the real technology frontier is so important that data used in the right way makes your salespeople better. It makes customers feel more confident about what they're going through. It, it enables you to be 
more transparent at every step of the process with those customers in a way that's highly personalized. And that personalization often is delivered by real people with those tools being given to them. And I, I think that's a, a very important piece of what everybody is learning in this transition kind of driven by COVID and this rapid sort of digitalization of interactions is that you have to be great at digital interactions, but you also have to be great at the in-person interactions when it comes time to do that. And no matter how good you are at digital, if you drop the ball in person, it, that's a disaster all the way around. Bill, this has been incredibly interesting. I think you're giving our members uh, and listeners a great deal to think about. Uh, we're going to tell them in advance that they'll be able to uh, reach you again, if not before, certainly in next year's IBS. Awesome. Since you thought this one was big, bold, and beautiful, just wait till next year. Uh, so <laughs> thanks for taking the time to come to IBS. Uh, thanks for taking the time with us today. And we look forward to working with you and our members working with you going forward. Jerry and Jim, really appreciate the time. Thanks very much. Thank uh, I'm excited for next year's IBS. Man, Jim, Phil certainly brings uh, some new ideas and uh, really advanced thinking uh, to his products and what he uh, believes he can do for our members. It's very impressive. Yeah, that is the wave of the future, as he said, and, uh, and certainly encourage all our members to uh, to embrace it and, uh, and 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 keep moving forward uh, with their businesses and, and and selling homes. And with that, let me uh, once again uh, echo your remarks earlier, thanking Wells Fargo Home Mortgage for their sponsorship. Let me also encourage all of our listeners: if you listen to the show and like our show, uh, please uh, go online, rate us, rank us, um, let people know uh, what you think of the content that Jim and I try to provide each week. Uh, and with that, I'll simply say thanks for listening. God bless America.